So, as has been our custom, uh, we are in the fourth commandment for a second week. And it was never my intention to drag this series to the Ten Commandments out. We should actually be finished by now, but clearly I underestimated the richness of the commandments. I find it impossible to really do anything but scratch the surface with one message. Now, two sermons isn't much better, but it's a start. So, maybe when we get to this latter half, we can speed things up a little bit. So, last week, we talked about the spirit of the fourth commandment. And for the most part, we avoided practical questions and the like. Now, this week, it remains, to, it remains for us, rather, to address um, those more hands-on concerns about the fourth commandment. Now, we're convinced that Christ is our Sabbath rest. But the question remains, is there anything else to be said? Does the commandment have anything to say regarding our worship, regarding our work practices, and regarding our ethical commitments? It does. And of those things just mentioned, worship will have the pride of place, meaning we're going to devote most of our time this morning to worship, what the fourth commandment has to say about what we're doing here. And the fourth commandment has surprisingly or unsurprisingly much to say about our worship gathering, what we're up to and how we should go about it. And from its primary grounding in worship, the commandment bleeds into and colors those other areas of concern as well. So in the first part of the sermon, we'll rehash things covered last week, and then we'll take our discussion into new territory in the second and third parts of the message. We'll introduce uh, what's called the Lord's Day and explore how it relates to the Sabbath, and then in the end, wrap things up by making practical considerations. Again, what the fourth commandment means for us today. So, Let's go to the very beginning, as we did last week. Turning to the creation account, we find that the seventh day is unique. It stands out from among the rest for many reasons, but principle among them is that the seventh day is depicted as having no end. From days one to six, the constant refrain is this, and there was evening, and there was morning. Now that neat demarcation is conspicuously absent on the seventh day. It's portrayed as an eternal day, neither having morning nor evening, neither beginning nor end. Now, what's the significance of this? Well, simply that symbolically speaking, the seventh day is the ultimate aim of creation. God made the heavens and the earth for the seventh day, for what the seventh day signifies, and that is to enter into His eternal rest. That was to be the perpetual state of creation. Again, the actual passage reads, Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had done and made, or created and made. So God rests on the seventh day. He blesses it and sanctifies it. And on that day, He invites His people to share in His rest. 
before the human race goes to its work as priests and kings of the creation, it's invited to share in His eternal bliss and peace. But almost as soon as it began, that rest was shattered to pieces. The man and the woman took from the tree and ate. Sin entered the world and death through sin. And God addressed the man specifically who bore the responsibility and he told him what his lot would be because of this. If you're in Genesis 2, you can slide over maybe a page or two to Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. The Lord speaking to the man says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken. From dust you are and to dust you shall return. So the ground, formerly man's friend, appointed to yield its abundance to him, has now become his enemy. So rather than strolling about the garden and picking from whatever tree he liked, now a curse lies upon the ground. It's become barren, yielding only thorns and thistles. Only in relentless toil will it give its fruits to him. He is destined to work the ground till he returns to it, from dust to dust. Thus, from the greatest heights to the lowest depths, humanity has fallen. Created to share in God's eternal rest, to participate in His own eternal bliss and happiness, the human race is reduced to a beast of burden. The rest that was given to them is no more. Now, it's into this situation that the Sabbath commandment is given. On the seventh day, the entire nation of Israel was to Shabbat. It was to cease from its work. And in ceasing, it looked back to the way things were. It remembered that seventh day when God rested, when all creation rested. It looked back to that day in the midst of its current toil, in the midst of its current restlessness. But that Sabbath, right, for all that it was, could not give true rest. It could only interrupt the curse upon the land, but not reverse it. That would require a far greater power. So we fast forward a bit in the story. Christ came wearing a crown, yet it was a crown of thorns. His ignominious crown, twisted and pressed upon his head by the soldiers, that crown declared the work that he had come to do. The curse that rested upon the ground, he came to remove it. It was sin that brought thorns and thistles, and the sin-bearer wore those very same thorns and thistles as his royal diadem. And he wore them not merely, and he wore really not merely the curse upon the ground, but man's burden that resulted from that curse. Surely, the prophet says, our griefs he bore and our sorrows he carried. 
all man's burdens under which he labored without rest, Christ carried to the cross. And as we pointed out last week, from the cross, Christ cried out, it is finished. And it's not merely that he cried those words, but when he did, on the sixth day, Christ completed his redemption work on the very same day that God completed his creation work. And Christ rested from his works on the same day that God rested from his work, the Sabbath. He's laid to the tomb, into the tomb to rest on the Sabbath day. And so all man's burdens are put to rest in Christ's Sabbath rest. He is our Sabbath. It was always pointing toward him, looking forward to the one who would bring rest to the human race. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 17 read as follows. 16 and 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So, the seventh day rest, shattered by Adam's sin, was restored and realized in Christ's obedience. The Sabbath was a shadow. Christ is the substance. So in His rest, on the Sabbath day, we are given rest from our burdens. Our sins and anxieties and troubles, He removes them. And He shelters us in a peace that surpasses all understanding. So He does not impose burdens. He's not the burden giver, but He removes them. Learn from me, he says, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. So Christ is our Sabbath rest, which leads us to our subject today. That's as far as we got last week. So Christ rises on the eighth day. He rises on the eighth day. He doesn't merely restore the old rest, but he inaugurates something entirely new. Listen to how Athanasius put it. He says, The Sabbath was the end of the first creation. Six days plus the seventh day rest. The Lord's Day, we'll get to that in a minute, was the beginning of the second, meaning the second creation, in which he renewed and restored the old. In the same way, as he prescribed that they should formally observe the Sabbath as a memorial of the end of the first things, right? So Sabbath, we would observe it or the Old Covenant, uh, Israel would observe it, and they would look back to that day. He says, so we honor the Lord's Day as being the memorial of the new creation. The Sabbath commemorates the completion of the old creation. The Lord's Day commemorates the renewal of the beginning. So in other words, the Sabbath observance belongs to the old order of things. Christ has brought an end to that old order in His Sabbath rest and inaugurated a new creation. It's not that the seventh day which commands our attention any longer, but it's the eighth day. And quite naturally, eight in biblical numerology is the number of new beginnings. We commemorate the eighth day. So Christ has brought that seventh day to its intended completion 
Sabbath rest is completed. He's removed our burdens and he's granted us rest. And now he's given that old order a new beginning in his resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come, right? We're, we're baptized into Christ's death and we're lifted from the waters into the newness of life. Something new happens on the eighth day. And so in a matter of years, the eighth day acquired a formal title, the Lord's Day, the Lord's Day. John received his revelation on the island Patmos, and he says it was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That is Sunday, the day of the Lord's resurrection. So very quickly, the infant church, right, which grew out of Judaism, moved away from Sabbath observance to recenter its life around the resurrection day. So the Sabbath has had its time. The old order has come to completion. Now, the church's life is centered around the eighth day. It comes to occupy the pride of place as, right, the church's holy day. So, that background, the completion of the old order and the inauguration of something new, provides the necessary context to approach the question that occupies us this morning. And that is, in what manner does the fourth commandment apply to us? In what manner, what what relevance does it still hold for us? Now, it's of course in relation to the eighth day. Between the seventh day and the eighth day, there remains something there for us. But we need to proceed with caution. And I want to take some time just to kind of tease this out a little bit so we can be clear about it in our minds. The relationship between the seventh day, Sabbath, And the eighth day, the Lord's day, is tricky. And there are certain sectors of the church that have got it wrong through the ages. And so there's a lot to consider, and we need to strike a delicate balance. Now, the first thing to consider, and I think the most important thing, is to say quite definitively that the Sabbath observance is repealed in the New Covenant. There's nothing in the New Covenant that commands us to observe the Sabbath day. Remember, the substance has arrived And the shadow has served its purpose, and now it can be set aside. Now, there are some, um, the Seventh-day Adventists in particular, and other Sabbatarians, who confess just the opposite, that Sabbath observance is still mandatory. Now, there are certain passages that seem to support their view, but they depend on a very particular reading of the Scriptures. One, we believe, that doesn't pay sufficient attention to the newness of the new covenant. So we don't have time to get into all those arguments. But the question is, can believers still observe the Sabbath if they want? Sure. The Apostle Paul makes room for this very thing. In Romans chapter 14, which is a chapter largely about Jews and Gentiles within the church and how they relate to one another. As the church began to grow out of Judaism, there was a lot of tension there. Some of the Hebrew people still wanted to observe the old custom Sabbath and do some of the old things, still eat kosher, but the Gentiles didn't. So Paul's kind of navigating those waters in Romans 14. He says, verses 5 and 6, one person regards one day above another, there's the Sabbath, another regards every day alike, 
He says, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. So, the apostle says, it's a matter of personal conviction. The trouble comes, however, when it becomes an obligation for all. So can believers still observe the Sabbath if they want? Is there wisdom there? Surely. They are there by all means. Um, but again, it, co- it becomes a problem when it's made an obligation. You must do this. Now another mistaken view is what's called Sabbath transference, which holds essentially that the Sabbath, the seventh day, and the Lord's day, the eighth day, are essentially the same thing, but just transferred from one day to another. Um, hence it's called the Christian Sabbath. Now, the Westminster Catechism, a really great document, but I just think here it's mistaken. Um, It reads as follows. As it is the law of nature that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God, so in his word, by a positive moral and perpetual commandment, binding, listen, all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for the Sabbath to be kept holy unto him. Then it says, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. So from the foundation of the world to Christ's resurrection, they said it was the seventh day, the last day of the week. And then from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. So according to this understanding, The obligations of the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy um, are directly transferred to the new covenant church, right? So things such as work and recreation or more broadly, anything deemed worldly um, are expressly forbidden on the Christian Sabbath. Now, the pilgrims, they were of this stripe. In New England, um, they published 39 Uh, pages of small print Sabbath laws that that believers had to observe on the eighth day of the week. Now, the trouble here, and I'm sympathetic to this view because I think it's closer to the truth. Um, The trouble here, though, is that it's hard to see how this doesn't just turn into more bondage rather than freedom, right, with all the stipulations and rules that come up beside it. So it's our conviction putting those other, two side, those other two views aside, at least having addressed them, that the seventh day and the eighth day are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. The old covenant um, Sabbath commandment, as we've said, was merely a shadow that was cast by Christ's looming presence. Right? As he was nearing, that shadow was growing longer, and finally when he came, it, we have no need of it anymore. It's absolved in him. Therefore, whatever the fourth commandment means for us today, It has to be cast in those terms. We're not to embrace the shadow any longer because Christ has arrived. So, we have to ask ourselves, how might we turn from the old covenant shadow to the new covenant substance? And so, what I want to do, rather than meticulously indexing the um, dissimilarities, of which there are many, I think it'd be better just to highlight where they align with one another, the Sabbath and the Lord's Day, And then let the dissimilarities speak for themselves, right? Just try to point out, hey, this is the minimal obligation that I think the commandment still has for us. And the rest, there's freedom. Do as you will. So the seventh day and the eighth day are similar 
and that they're both claimed by God. The seventh day, remember, Genesis 2, was declared to be holy. And thus it was set apart exclusively for God's purposes. It was God's day, and on God's day, man was supposed to rest. They were to use God's time according to God's purposes. So in a similar fashion, the eighth day is also claimed by God. Remember, Sunday is the Lord's day, right? It's claimed by Him. And that's what makes Sunday um, unique and holy for the church. And, And remember, things that are holy are set apart for the Lord's service. So in the, old, uh, in the old temple, there were holy objects, right? Things that were consecrated. There were altars and lampstands and etc. All these were holy to the Lord. And as holy things, they could only be used in divine service. So a pinch of holy incense couldn't be used to perfume the priest's home. And a holy fork couldn't uh, be brought home for a barbecue. These things belonged to the Lord. So they were set apart only for that service. Now, again, the Lord's day is a day that belongs to the Lord. On this day, we're not on our own time. right? We're not on our own schedules, but on the Lord's schedule. So on the eighth day, our time is interrupted, and it's claimed by the Lord. Now, clearly, He is the Lord of all time, every day of the week, but He claims this one specifically. And so, how we structure our time is really important. Our calendars revolve around many things. The kids' sports, or the round-the-clock work week, or the nation's man-made calendar. Our time is out of joint. It's organized, centered around secondary things. But Jesus' resurrection, it inaugurates a new calendar. A new schedule to bring ourselves around. And so, He rescues us from our idolatrous rhythms, and he puts us in harmony with his time, right? Time itself is redeemed. It's a bit like a tithe, right? We tithe to the Lord from the first fruits of our wealth, right? Right off the top, we give him our best. And so we tithe to the Lord the first fruits of our time, the first day of the week. We give it to him right off the top. And he desires that that time be spent in remembrance of him. Remember, what does the commandment say? Exodus 28. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Thus, it was very clear for the early church, even in the time of the apostles, that the Lord's day would become the designated day of worship for the church, the day that we assemble. So the seventh day, remember, was instituted as a memorial of the old creation. The eighth day is instituted as a memorial of the new creation. We gather principally on this day and not any other day because on this day Christ rose from the grave. We obey the fourth commandment in our remembrance of the resurrection. Now in that sense, every Sunday is a little Easter. Of course, we celebrate Easter once a year, but we gather every Lord's Day to remember the inauguration of a new creation. And so this this day, right today for us, is the church's day of rest. We don't work six days to culminate in seventh day rest, right? We don't start and work and then get to the end and rest. Rather, we start the week in rest, in prayer and thanksgiving and joy. 
the first time of the week we devote it to the Lord. As Karl Barth said, a man who prays on Sunday will pray throughout the week. A man who gives thanks on Sunday will live a life of gratitude. A man who rejoices in the Lord on the Lord's day will see every day as a day of the Lord. And of course, physical rest is good, but that's not the primary way the church rests, right? We rest in Christ. He's the substance, and we rest by remembering him. So, so you ask, what are we doing? What is worship all about? Why do we come and sing songs and hear the word and take communion and fellowship? Why? It's to remember the Lord. It's to commemorate the Lord's day. And so every Sunday we memorialize his death and resurrection and ascension. And our remembrance, what we're doing today, is not about remembering someone who's absent, right? Like a a lost loved one who's since passed. In remembering the Lord, it's actually a, a mode of his presence. So in Exodus 20, where the commandments are given, if you just go a few lines further, It's Exodus 20, verse 24. The Lord says this. He says, In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So it's not that we remember the Lord and he's far off, but as we remember him, he comes to us, right? As we remember our rest, our rest will come to us and bless us. So our eighth-day worship service is the time and place where Christ has promised to meet us. We praise his name, and the scriptures tell us that he inhabits our praises. His presence comes near in song. We hear his word read and proclaimed, and the scripture tells us that Christ is the word. His presence comes near in the book. We celebrate Holy Communion, and the scriptures tell us that the elements are a participation in his body and blood. His presence comes near at the table. And so in his presence, as we remember Christ, we find rest. He draws near to us. And this leads us to one inescapable conclusion. As our holy day, the Lord's day, is a day of joy. Remember Nehemiah's and Ezra's words as the people gathered to celebrate Passover for the first time and A very long time. This is Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. They say, this day is holy to the Lord your God. And then they say, do not mourn or weep. Go, eat the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved for the Lord, for rather the joy of the Lord is your strength. Right, amen. Every Sunday is a little Easter. On the Lord's Day, mourning and weeping are not appropriate, but instead celebration. Eat the fat, drink of the sweet. So our rest consists not primarily in putting aside our labors, but in the joy of the new creation, of entering into the work that Christ has done for us. So our Lord's Day service, what we're up to here, ought to have joy as its distinguishing mark. So now to some practical concerns. So the challenge of the fourth commandment to us is remember the Lord's day and keep it holy. And so how might we do that? I'll offer one main consideration, and we'll break that down into various parts, and then we'll wrap up shortly with the Lord's Supper. 
And really that one main consideration is if, I, I, if we want to obey the fourth commandment and its abiding significance for us, I think it's this. It's to treat the Lord's Day as the climax of the week rather than the collapse. So according to time's current arrangement, Friday and Saturday are the climax of the week. The work week and the school week have come to a close, and on these days, it's time for dinner parties and games and late night outs. And Sunday is kind of the rehab day, uh, the recuperation day in order to get ready for another week, right? You rest on that day and, and try to do nothing and get ready for Monday or cram it all in and get ready for Monday. And that's fine, right? To a certain extent. It's fine to a certain extent. Um, and the reason it's, we would want to move beyond that is because it's still operating according to secular time and not the Lord's, right? That's not the Lord's construction of the week. So it's my conviction that the fourth commandment calls us to overhaul family schedules, to overturn our calendars if we need to, and to reassign the eighth day um, its preeminence. The, the Sunday as the culmination of the entire week, beginning with the culmination. And so we want to consecrate this day and to treat it as holy, right? To treat this day as holy. Now, I understand that we're more casual around here. I used to simply wear a t-shirt while preaching before someone nudged me and told me to look a little more respectable. Uh, <laughs> it was actually my dad, right? Of all people. <laughs> But by regarding this day as a holy day, I'm not advocating for suits and dresses necessarily. Although I think our entire is not atti- our attire is not entirely beside the point. Really, more to the point, I'm not talking about forms or liturgies or tastes at all. Now, those are important discussions to have. Um, on which the scripture is not silent. It does have much to say about how we worship the forms and structure that it should take, but that's not our concern here. I don't want to favor, right, uh, traditional above contemporary, contemporary above traditional, anything like that. That's beside the point. Our concern at this point is entirely about attitude and demeanor, that we treat the day, what we're doing here, and, and really the whole day with a certain sanctity and reverence about it. Not, not in any superstitious way. The, the, the Reformation Church was very clear about this is nothing superstitious. There's nothing uh, that they has some sort of weird substance about it. It's because what we remember this day, it's the Lord's Day. He meets us in our worship, and therefore this space becomes holy space, right? The Lord's presence is near, so this space is holy place, space. He comes to us in this time, and therefore this time becomes holy time. And we ought to treat it as such. So I think what the commandment militates against is a laxical, lackadaisical attitude about our worship. That what we're up to here would be regarded as something of an afterthought without sufficient care or concern. Do you remember we've talked about this the past couple weeks? What it means to regard something as holy to hallow something. It means to treat it as, in the most basic terms, to treat it as uncommon. So this, worship, the word, communion, fellowship, is not ordinary business. 
simply another thing we do in the order of attending a sporting event or hearing a lecture. It's uncommon business, and we must rise to meet the occasion. It's uncommon because the Lord meets us here. In fact, as the church, this, together, corporately, is the most important thing we do. And in many respects, what we do here sets the tone for the entirety of our lives. So what might it mean to regard this day as holy? And I want to put forward two things. And the first is, as I've said, to approach worship with deep reverence and awe. Passages that come to mind are throne room scenes. Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah gets to see the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filling the entire temple. And what happens to Isaiah? He's reduced to dust and ashes before the thrice holy God. Or go to Revelation chapter 4, where we get to peek behind the curtain a little bit and see the Lord's presence in heaven. The whole entire creation is praising Him, and the living creatures and the elders are collapsed to the floor before Him. Now that's typically the kind of reaction that holiness evokes, a reverent awe and fear. Now it's an element that ought to be present in our worship. Now the alternative to this, the alternative to reverence and awe, isn't, you know, clappy and exuberant worship. As we've said, the alternative to to this is laxity and carelessness in worship. So an inappropriate response to the Holy One is simply indifference, right? Coming here and and just not having any engagement about it. Just kind of being uninvolved, not a part of it. That's what the commandment militates against. And it calls us, as we worship, to realize whose presence we're entering into. And for there to be a holiness about it. And and I think in some respects that looks different for each person. You know, holiness might not be for you to to regard that holiness, might not be for you to dress up and so on and so forth. But whatever it is, that's what we want to embody when we come to worship. A a holiness and awe and and reverence in our hearts. And secondly, the other thing is we just want to regard this day as holy means to Uh, approach our worship with great joy, with great joy. So as much as holiness is about reverence and do fear, it's also about joy and rejoicing. A holy day, remember Nehemiah's words, is not about mourning and weeping, but celebration. Eat the fat, drink the sweet. So the fourth commandment urges us to make this day as a festive and celebratory day. It is, after all, its own Little Easter. What do we do on Easter? We stop everything. We make sure to soak all of the goodness of that day up. That's the great Easter. Every Sunday is a a, a little mini Easter. What we're trying to do is just soak up the glory of what the Lord has done. And what's our reaction to that? Joy, thanksgiving, praise, worship, festivity. That's what our worship service should be like. On the eighth day, the new creation, it's not near, but, or it's not far, but it's near. We don't look far off to creation's or to salvation's completion, but we celebrate it as already completed among us. It is finished. That's what this day is about. 
And in that sense, the Lord's Day is the most welcome interruption that we could desire. We suspend the relentless stream of bad news and negativity to remember the resurrection. Joy breaks in from the outside and dispels the darkness of this world. And our memory is refreshed. Sorrow and gloom and anxiety do not have the last word. And it's not merely a distraction from the way things are. When we come and we remember the Lord's resurrection, we're not just distracting ourselves, but rather we're getting in touch with the way things really are. The eighth day is not a day for illusions, but for dispersing illusions. The Lord's day calls us to leave behind this present evil age, soon to pass away, and bids us to see things as they really are, eternal realities, new creation, resurrection joy. And so what might that look like to celebrate this day? Ezra has already told us, eat the fat, drink the sweet. In other words, indulge a little bit. In his context, it meant having the best cut of meat and the best glass of wine. Sounds like a good good Lord's Day to me. But again, for us, it means setting a tone of celebration and joy about our worship service. Psalm 100, verses 4 and 5. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. So, and we'll begin to wrap up here. True joy, it's been said, is a difficult matter. True joy is hard. It's not automatic. It's not something on tap that we can access immediately. It's the culmination of a process. I was glad when they said to me, the psalmist says, let us go to the house of the Lord. Being in the Lord's house on the Lord's day, singing his praises, hearing his word, and partaking in his supper is indeed the culmination of joy, the height of everything we do. But we have to see it that way, right? We have to approach it that way and realize this is, this is the peak. And so here's where the difficult work of not only rescheduling our week, but reimagining it comes into play. In order to celebrate a weekly little Easter, we have to rethink our Fridays and Saturdays. That will differ from family to family, but maybe it means rescheduling family outings to Sunday to make the most of the day. Maybe it means making Saturday the catch-up day, or whatever, right? It's different from family to family. The point is, We ought to do whatever we need to do to celebrate this day. And not just here, right? Take it out and let the whole day be full of the Lord's goodness. So it's the resurrection day. Today we remember that our sins have been released. Our burdens have been taken from our shoulders. And that hope and peace and rest have been granted to us in Christ. And that is reason for us to rejoice. Let's go ahead and pray.